This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt in the Cloth. This was my sermon from November 20th, 2022. I hope you enjoy. God bless. My scripture this morning is taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it is found in your pew Bibles on page 188 in the New Testament section of your Bible. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared, this is the hard part, to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image. Now this is important. I want to pause for just a second. This word right here in Greek is E-I-K-O-N, icon. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. My sermon today is a very weird Latin word called Christus Victor. Very loose translation would be is the victorious Christ. Now this is kind of a weird thing for me because uh, in one side of it, in the Christian world, this is a good thing, right? Because in the midst of our life, we're talking about Advent and we know that The best part about Advent is Jesus comes and is victorious against the things of the earth. But there's a little bit of a juxtaposition in my head because as I was preparing this, I'm remembering my conversation with you last Sunday in our fellowship dinner. Can you believe that that was last week? And we talked about my trip to Jerusalem and Israel and Palestine and Nazareth and Galilee. And when you're in Jerusalem, when you're walking down the Via Della Rosa, this word, and I'm pronouncing it in the Italian version, Christus Victor, in that way, you see this word every place. This is not a good word on the Via Della Rosa. You see... It's in the same way, I I want you to recognize where this comes from. When Paul is writing this letter to the church in uh, Colossae, 
The idea here is he is talking to a group of people in the first century that are literally living underneath the boot hill of Rome. They want Jesus to save them. They're begging for something to take them out of their bondage. They want to feel free. And even if they're not free and they continue to live out the rest of their life as servants to Rome, they are victorious in what they believe. Paul is excited about this. And then the juxtaposition to come to Jerusalem. And you're walking down the Via Della Rosa, which is where the stations of the cross are. And you see this word, Christus Victor. This is literally what the Templars and the Crusader Knights put everywhere as they killed in the name of Christ in his hometown, in the place that he preached peace, love, and comfort. We built churches on the bodies of his ancestors. This is an extremely strong juxtaposition. And it's important that we call it what it is. It's not that it's a bad thing for us to build a house of worship in the name of God through Jesus Christ. But we have to recognize the people that are hearing this from Paul were begging to not be built that way. Not from anger. Not from hatred, not from a place of war or violence, but from a place of salvation. And Paul writes this prayer. And he prays for the strength and endurance of his readers. There will be a time, he says, that they will be filled with the interior graces of joy. And in that gratitude, light of enormous benefits gained from Christ's redemptive victory and victorious work. You see, Paul sees that the rescue is complete. We were a captive. And his language would be kingdom. In the kingdom of darkness. To being a citizen of the kingdom of the sun. Now the part that's important for us is. Paul recommends and recognizes that this came still from death. And Jesus' death on a cross. Now I know this is dark. So I'm going to lighten it up a little. Paul also continues to write. And as you all know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, 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 a student of hymnody. Which ancient hymns versus today's hymns versus all of the hymns in between. And this is considered a, a, a hymn uh, from verses 15 through 20. It's the way that he writes that we know it's a style of him. And for Paul, it's a, it's a good thing. Like it's a, in every aspect, I would call it, hmm, maybe not an Advent hymn, but it's definitely a hymn. It's a, a hymn about prayer. In the hymn, we have some of the most sublime words about Christology in the entire canon, in the entire aspect of the New Testament. You hear this, this language if we were limited to this book alone to decipher Paul's teaching, we would have little information, however, about the Holy Spirit or God the Creator. 
Instead, we have a very highly developed Christological development of Christ in relationship to creation and Christ. And in his idea, it's about in relationship and reconciliation. It's about salvation, Paul says. Christ is the sovereign over the powers of evil which threaten our lives. I think it's interesting to point out that Paul also says that some of these powers may have been created by Christ, but they are bent toward evil and need reconciliation through Christ's sacrifice. And then, as if it's supposed to have been there, Paul puts this in the hymn, and you, dot, 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 he has now reconciled. Somewhere, you are a part of this cosmic drama of reconciliation. Now I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this word icon. Because in the midst of all of our understanding, we get really confused about how this works. Paul uses the word image of Christ. Icon. E-I-K-O-N. This is the image of God. Icon. Now, if we were to go back at the time of Paul in the first century, icons happened all over the place. This is why that Torah talks about do not make graven images. Now, it's different in Hebrew, but do not make graven images of false gods. Now, it's fascinating because what ends up happening is, is that after Jesus dies and resurrects and Christianity starts to explode. Remember who is in charge. Those people that are in power. And the common person, us, would have a hard time trying to figure out how and when and what to and how to pray through things to get to God. So you start to see images of God in the name of Jesus Christ popping up all over the place. So much so that it splits the church in half. The Eastern Orthodox movement gets created and Catholicism becomes solidified. These two movements break off from each other based off of the ideas of the phrase iconography. And there was a whole lot of other stuff. But the idea of being able to pray to and through something, well, that's just too weird. And in the, and in the aspect of this, Paul is bringing it because he is saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And you need to understand that an image to Paul is an imprint or a shadow, a reflection of something that cannot be duplicated. An icon is an image of something greater that can be understood in human terms. For Paul, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> For you, it's not a bad thing. You're like, oh my gosh, Josh. No, we can't do that. Well, guess what? You do it every Sunday and don't even recognize it. In our own sanctuary, you have icons. 
One of those is supposed to be the image of God, right? If you look behind me, it's a stained glass window. And at the very top of the stained glass window, you see a triangle. Now, all of you that grew up in a, in a Christian church or a Presbyterian church or Lutheran or Methodist and even Catholics and, uh, and all of them, you see that triangle and you say, oh my goodness, well, of course, that's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, then what's that circle in the middle? Well, in ancient times, that circle in the middle was the three becoming one. Oh, wait. That icon is also found in other ancient cultures, like Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Babylonians. It becomes the eye on the top of a pyramid on the back of one of your dollars. It's not something that you are unfamiliar with, but let's stay positive. In our icon, it's the image of God through Jesus Christ, and the very next thing you see underneath this triangle with the circle in the middle is the shepherd's sign. I will bring you a shepherd in the name of this holy divinity, trinity, something, 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 fancy word, and then I'm going to extend my grace and spirit to you in the form of a... Oh my goodness, church, you gotta wake up. Come on now. In the form of a... Thank you. And if we have this dove coming out from the heavens, obviously coming across the temporal and the eternal realms, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit in the forms of fire. That's what's coming out of the, the dove's mouth. That's my favorite part of the thing. The dove is shooting fire out of its mouth. So any of you kids in here or watching online, you go, oh, check it out. It's a flame-throwing dove. And then, what's right underneath that? It's a... And, and us, theologically, we have always said that Jesus becomes the Lamb of God. Ladies and gentlemen, you have your own icon here where it's the image of God right smack dab in front of you. Yeah, Bobby, you're going to have to get on the stained glass so they can see it online because some of these people online have never seen our stained glass window. And as he's doing that, I'm just going to keep talking. But the idea here is, is that it's designed so that we can find the image of God in front of us that is not something to be duplicated. It's supposed to tell us the story. Icons are meant to emphasize more than just meets the eye. It's something important to us. It's maybe even uncovering some of the rational practice may help us to appreciate what the Colossians writer says as Christ, as the icon of God. Jeanette Angel Tarosian says that she describes the icon as being the glimpse of truth. That neither liturgy nor iconography, now liturgy is the practice of the people. And I, and I have to admit this, I, I sometimes get stuck in the traditions, God in your mercy, of our ancients and our ancestors. Because for me, it's the connection piece. We become the image of Christ to the world. You get to be the dove that shoots fire out of your mouth. 
you are the image of God, whether you want to accept it or not. But Jeanette Torosian says, neither liturgy nor iconography pretends to be anything other than an image. Neither seeks to duplicate the splendor and majesty of the kingdom of God. The objective is, is that both give us glimpses of it. Both give us space in which to reenact it. Both hold out the tantalizing promise and assurance of God's love here and now. And neither the icon nor the liturgy promises to be perfect. Let me give you an example. We had our hanging of the green service this morning. And in, in front of us you have these images and icons of our faith during Advent which is the beginning of our liturgical year. Starts next week. It literally means to prepare for the coming of our Lord and Savior. Small things like the Christmas tree where Martin Luther would put candles on the branches to represent the stars in the heavens. And yeah, you've got to think about that. Candles on evergreen trees in the cold weather. Notice that the trees were outside the building. Yeah, there were fires. Then there's the Advent candle wreath that each of those represents something new and special for us in our aspects of our faith. Then there's the nativity scene, which is hopefully self-explanatory in the sense that we talk about Matthew and Luke's understanding of Jesus' birth. All of these things, even the wreaths in a circle. Does that circle sound familiar? It's at the top of our stained glass. Everlasting, evergreen, God's love to all of God's creation. I left this out. My favorite part about Advent is, is that if I wasn't allergic to it, we'd have them. But having live evergreen branches in the sanctuary, when you walk in the door and you can smell it, right? There's a lot of practice about when iconography began about the, the essence and the fragrance of God. And it's fascinating that in our own stained glass window, it has the images of lilies. When I was doing my research on ancient liturgy, I found out very quickly that it was common practice that the fragrance of God was the smell of lilies. So when you walk into these churches in Jerusalem and you go to an Orthodox church or you go to a Catholic church and they're passing on the incense that is to enhance and bring in the fragrance of God. There's something powerful about that, folks, that sticks into us and it goes down to our DNA. But neither the icon nor the liturgy promises to be perfect, but they both promise to be truthful. In a sense, the liturgy itself is an icon of God's presence in the world, reflected back through our own humanness, which is imperfect, but always truthful. I think it's important for us to recognize that the writer of Colossians truly makes a theological connection between Jesus Christ and God the Creator. That connection is the image 
of God, which is you. You are the image of God, and as the icon of God, we get to see images of Jesus Christ and God's love, God's glory and power, but not in fullness due to the limitations of humanity. It's in that place, in that small liminal space that we get to feel the essence of God in your lives. As you leave and challenge yourselves to be the icon, the image of Christ's love. In the name of the Creator, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.